This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, this is Michael Chapman, the president and CEO of the Community Foundation in Southwest Florida, known as the Global Center for Generosity. You might want to stay tuned to the Dr. Karen Show as I talk about fat leadership, faithful, available, and teacher, and how to make a transformation, as I did, from Christian beer man to being a marketplace impact leader. My guest today is the CEO of an organization that helps the generous of spirit to transform their communities for the greater good. Today, I am speaking with my special guest, Michael Chapman. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Community Foundation, the Global Center for Generosity, located in Southwest Florida. Michael received a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science from Missouri State University, a Master of Arts in Philanthropy from St. Mary's University of Minnesota, and a certification in entrepreneurship from Harvard Business School. Nonprofit Times Magazine has recognized Michael Chapman as one of the most influential philanthropic leaders in America. So, Michael, I welcome you to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Thank you for being my special guest. Thank you, Dr. Karen. It's a pleasure to be in harmony with you and share this moment with you. Yes, thank you so much. I love that word, harmony. That's a beautiful way to start, Michael. That's great. (laughs) You know, people might not know, Michael, much about the Community Foundation. So, let's start there. What can you tell people about the foundation, what the mission is, and how you really make a difference in the world? Yeah, so the Community Foundation is a movement that started about 100 years ago out of Cleveland, Ohio, and we are one of 750 community foundations in the United States. And essentially what we are, we are capacity builders for nonprofit organizations. We are endowment builders. We are grant makers, scholarship providers. Generally, a community foundation, particularly us, is like the center of philanthropy or the center of generosity within our region for all things charitable. Volunteerism, philanthropy, humanitarianism, all of those fall under the umbrella of a community foundation. I know that you have some innovative and special kinds of projects at your community foundation. Tell us a little bit about a few of those. What's particularly exciting? What are you most proud of that you're doing that's making a difference in some of these areas? Great question, Dr. Karen. One of the things that I'm very excited about is within our particular region of Southwest Florida, we are home to many seasonal residents or snowbirds. And so when they are here in season, they're looking to get engaged and they use volunteerism and charity work as a way of getting connected to their new local community. And one of the things that we started is called the Charity Event Awards, which is like their Grammys or Oscars for the hottest and the best charity events 
in all of our regions. So, so many of the philanthropic organizations use charitable events as a way of generating resources to fund their mission. And so they go all out. Some of these events raise over $50 million in over two or three days. Some obviously raise fewer, but goes to show you that events are very much a part of the social fabric as well as the way we make money here. So it's a real big deal. So I'm really excited about that initiative. So tell me a little bit, if a person is recognized or honored in this Grammy or Oscar type experience, what does that really mean for them as an organization? What does it mean for the community? What happens next? On a very trivial level, it's bragging rights. <laughs> they get on a much larger, grander scale, it's publicity, it's awareness, and it leads to more donors and philanthropists and corporate sponsors knowing about the charity. And it's a way of our foundation putting a stamp of approval on this event that makes people want to come out and support it with ticket sales as well as underwriting these events. So it's a really big deal. That's pretty significant. That's a very creative way to actually come alongside an organization to help with their fundraising initiatives by recognizing what they're doing in the community and their mission and putting it out there, giving them visibility so other people can be aware as well. I know that you also, Michael, have a conference that's a faith and generosity conference. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. That's one of the many initiatives that we've started over the last five years. And we noticed clearly not only in our region, but just nationwide, when you look at the data, the data tells us that the most generous people towards charitable and philanthropic causes are people of faith. And yet there was no conference that was being held to teach ministries and nonprofits how to understand the mind of the faith-based donor. Thus, the idea of the Faith and Generosity Conference was born, and it's become really a big deal, a very well-supported. We get about 250 people that support it every year, and it's usually those that work for philanthropic organizations. And I was really excited in this past year the number of marketplace leaders that are starting to participate in our faith and generosity conference as well as participants. So I'm really excited about the faith and generosity conference. So it sounds like not only are you helping people to raise funds, you're also educating people about this whole space of philanthropy and how to do that better is what I'm hearing. That's exactly what it is. When we first started, we niched it almost exclusively towards those who were seeking to bring in funding from the faith-based donor. Now that we've been doing it for a few years, I've been excited about the fact that more and more donors, the philanthropists who identify as faith-based, as Christian, as spiritual donors have raised their hand to say, I'm willing to come from out of hiding and actually go to this event and share my knowledge, not only as someone who gives, but maybe my insight can really help the CEOs and executive directors of these charities best understand how to effectively raise money from us to support their mission. That's phenomenal. So say a little bit more about how you work with, let's say, Christian executives who are in the secular marketplace. 
What are some of the services that you have? How do you come alongside them to realize some of their legacy goals? Yeah. So for us, it initially starts with their estate planning attorney. It starts with their wealth advisor, maybe a real estate broker, maybe an accountant, an insurance broker, someone who already has a relationship with the faith-based donor. And my role as the leader of the community foundation is to come in as a value add to all of those professionals. I become the philanthropic advisor to bring value to say a wealth advisor or to an accountant or to a estate planning. And they're saying Michael Chapman from the community foundation, the center for generosity is coming in to be your philanthropic advisor on our behalf to tell you about the various ways of how you might thoughtfully give. So it's a two-part approach, Dr. Karen. One is the technical aspects of all the different ways that they can give through life insurance, through the IRA, through the donation of real estate. And then the other one is the very practical side of it. And that is someone of affluence and enormous wealth who says, I have all this money that my kids are going to inherit. In fact, they don't even know how wealthy we are. And if they knew how much money we had, it would scare them or they would try to poison me to get it right now. So I need to make sure that I pass on not just the value of my estate, but my spiritual values. I want them to own that as well. And what can we do right now to start preparing them to inherit this money? Actually, I love what you're saying about that, because when I think about family businesses, for example, and I think about succession planning, especially there is preparation and it takes time to pass the baton from one generation to the next. And there's some specific skills about that. And if a person suddenly wakes up and has inherited millions of dollars, have never touched it before, didn't know how to manage it, didn't know what the intention of the earlier generation was, it could be a disaster. People need to learn and be educated in this area as well as anything else that they're planning for. So this is a great service that your community foundation is offering. Yeah, and to put more skin to it and to give a real life example without mentioning the name of the faith-based donor, there's a family I'm working with right now where the mom inherited $850 million, literally $850 million. And she's thinking, how can I get my son more involved in this? Because he is going to be the person that's going to inherit this wealth. So they established a fund or a foundation, a giving fund underneath our umbrella. And the son is very much involved in that. And so we're teaching him principles of grant making and a spiritual approach to wealth management. So it's been good to see how she's able to have this impact while she's still alive, as opposed to him inheriting this money when she's gone. And that could be trouble. Absolutely. And she can have peace of mind that her son knows what to do after she's gone, because that's a very big amount of money to have to manage if you've never done it before. And so often, I know with many families, they leave a great amount of wealth and affluence to the next generation, and they just squander it because they really don't know what to do. And what a waste when you think about the blood, sweat, and tears and the vision of the generation before. So actually, this is very much needed. And that's a great story and a great example of why it's needed in a sense. So thank you, Michael, for sharing that. Now, Michael, I know that 
you haven't always been in the nonprofit sector, and we'll come to that in a second, but I know you were also, just like my listeners, you were a corporate executive as well. I don't know all the corporations you were in, but I know you were in Anheuser-Busch as one of them, which kind of seems interesting. So I want you to tell us a little bit about your journey as a corporate executive and a little bit about where you were, what you did, and what you learned there. Yeah, there were so many lessons learned when I was at Anheuser-Busch because it served as the backdrop for all the formative years of my corporate development. I was there for 18 years with this one company. And as we jokingly refer to off air, I was the Christian beer man. <laughs> I was officially known as the Christian beer man. But I entered into it very young and I started off in sales and then I moved over to the area of corporate responsibility. And I focused a lot in working with our network at that time of 750 independent distributors with Anheuser-Busch and then made my way over to the foundation side. And so it was very fulfilling to be a part of such a large company with over 63,000 employees at that time, a multi-billion dollar global brand, just the impact that we had as an organization and being a person of faith inside of that organization and just the platform that I had to make a difference in so many lives. It was my work at Anheuser-Busch that I began to learn for the first time about what it meant to be a marketplace leader, you know, to being a person of faith with influence inside a major secular company. How did you decide to go to Anheuser-Busch, and especially as a Christian, what was the pathway or the journey to get there? You know what? I I believe that nothing happens by accident, but it took me totally by surprise how I ended up there. Literally, I was living in Miami at the time, my, my hometown, and I was working with a youth, a faith youth organization, and part of my job was to go into the high schools and give motivational and inspirational talks to the students. And at the conclusion of one of my presentations, there was a senior level executive, an African-American woman who came up to me and said, hey, you need to come to work for us. And I said, I'm not understanding how a youth speaker is going to work for Anheuser-Busch. And so that's (laughs) why she told me that they have a division that goes into the colleges, into the schools to talk about positive choices and that we have a very clear mandate and a message as a company that we want to get out. If you're over the age of 21 and you choose to drink, drink responsibly. If you're under the age of 21, we don't want your business. And so they were very clear about that. And so that's how I ended up at Anheuser-Busch as a consultant going around giving motivational talks in high schools and college campuses. And interestingly enough, Dr. Karen, what is not widely known is that through that experience, I spoke to over 2 million teenagers and college students during my tenure in Heiser-Busch. Yeah. So you were having quite an influence with a message that's a positive message, you know, about making responsible choices. That's a platform right there to to be able to speak with that many young people along the way. So Take us a little bit deeper into it. How did you end up getting the name The Christian Beer Man? And because you moved to some other positions, and how did you make that all work, being The Christian Beer Man? (laughs) You know, it was a badge that I wore with honor, to be honest with you, because I was literally a Christian beer drinker. So I enjoyed the product in moderation. 
in moderation, of course. So I really embraced it. I really did. And it endeared a lot of people to me within the organization to say, here's a person of faith. Uh, here's a Christian young man who was very spiritually grounded, principle-centered, and at the same time, someone who was not dogmatic or preachy or judgmental. So it really allowed me in many ways to share my faith and be a good witness uh, spiritually for the people that I came in contact with. And that was not only within the Anheuser-Busch corporate structure within St. Louis, but it was also filtered out to the network of the 750 independent distributors throughout the U.S. and the people that they impacted. So it was a very impactful time. And people used to always say to me, I'll never forget this. Even my pastor would say to me, you have a bigger platform than I do. You have a bigger platform than I do. When you think about the size of your congregation and the impact that you're having is actually bigger than mine. So relish the fact that spiritually you have a high calling on your life to have this type of impact. Absolutely. And in fact, I'm so excited about it because, as you know, I really believe in this whole concept of marketplace ministry leaders. And somebody's got to go out into these places where there are lots of people that, you know, we want to reach and that we want to inspire one way or another. So tell us, Becca, a little bit, too, about what else you did there as a marketplace ministry leader, because some executives are struggling with, how do I live out my Christian values in a corporation as big as, as the one you described, Anheuser-Busch is, is a huge corporation, a secular corporation, and how do I make a difference there living in concert with my Christian principles. You know, in listening to you, the word that you kept saying is living out. And I think that's what it's about. It's all about a life, being a lifestyle witness. It's all about allowing your light to shine and being present in the moment and letting people know that you're available. I'll never forget, and I won't be able to mention the name of the person on your show, but just to kind of give you an idea I was working with a gentleman who at that time was considered to be the wealthiest independent wholesaler or distributor in the whole Anheuser-Busch network, multimillionaire many times over. And every year, this family would bring me in to speak into about 15 different schools every year. So I would be there over days, sometimes a week or even 10 days, I would have to stay over the weekend because I would do like maybe three schools per day. And I literally watched their daughter grow up and all the challenges that they were having because at the time she was in high school and she got in trouble. And I was one of the first individuals that they called and the family flew me in from Miami outside of me being there just to be able to have a presence and to be able to minister to them in a time of crisis. So I think it's just a matter of being available and earning trust. It's not about preaching or quoting a bunch of scripture. It's just really about being available and living the life that when the, that those moments come, they know that they have a true friend that they can count on. That is just so priceless. And it is, I think it's the most impactful thing that we can do in the marketplace. And I can certainly attest that people have come to me at certain times of crisis, even this week in the crisis that was going on 
with the shootings and so on and so forth. I'm in a business meeting where they know I'm a Christian, so they asked me to pray about the situation. So, yes, the people know who we are. They see us, and they will reach out to us because of how we are living. And we've become trusted, just as you're saying, trusted advisor, even if that's not your official role. It's an unofficial one that you certainly take on in these situations. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I hope that's going to inspire some other marketplace ministry leaders about what they can do and the impact they can have. Because you've talked about huge impacts of different audiences and different people whose lives that you touched and were able to give a word of encouragement and inspiration along the way. So that's just phenomenal, Michael. Thank you for the work that you did there. And, and what that takes us to the bridge of, of how you got from being the Christian beer man into that nonprofit sector, because I know you were working with the foundation at Anheuser-Busch, and of course, you get to see a little bit about the philanthropic side from the for-profit industry as well. So tell us about how you got into the nonprofit world. Yeah, so after Anheuser-Busch was sold to a foreign company called InBev out of Belgium, our department, corporate social responsibility, was downsized. And so I took a package. I left the company early. And not knowing what to do next, I interestingly enough, I started a radio program called the Michael Chapman Giving Show. And I was on radio and I was giving on a weekly. And a gentleman on the radio program called in and said, hey, if you ever want to get into the philanthropic space, I heard you mention that you were worked for Anheuser-Busch. We're in Missouri as well. And if you want to come back to Missouri at any time, I would love for you to be my vice president of philanthropy. Even though I knew of social responsibility and philanthropic work from Anheuser-Busch, it was still somewhat different what he was offering. So it interesting, it happened to be Dr. Karen in the same place where I went to college to get my undergrad. So I went, took the job, It's called the Community Foundation of the Ozarks in Springfield, Missouri. So I became the number two person there. And that's how I made a more formal entree into community foundation work by serving as a vice president there. And I did that for four and a half years before I came where I'm at now. Okay, phenomenal. That's a great pathway. I'm getting this picture that all of these past experiences are preparing you for what you do now. So say a word or two about that. What have you learned on the journey along the way, both on the corporate side and the nonprofit side that really informs how you operate in your current role? Yeah, everything that I do comes from a spiritual worldview that I recognize that my life, I'm not here to get anything, but I'm here to let things happen through me. It's the song we learned as a kid, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. So I'm all about how can my life be used in such a way where I could make a difference in people's life. And every step of the way, someone said it this way to, to be available, to be faithful, available, and teachable. It's through that acronym, that fat acronym, faithful, available, and teachable that I've emerged. And interestingly enough, as we're having this conversation, I'm reflecting on your question because I'm now hosting a marketplace leader show called Generous People on television, 
regionally. So we reach about 610,000 households within our area. And I never sought to host a show. I was just going about doing the Faith and Generosity Conference, Dr. Karen, and just doing my work as a CEO when the regional television person saying, we are starting a marketplace leader show and we want you to host it. And that's, that's what happened. That's amazing. So what I'm seeing in this several things, I'm seeing that I'm thinking of the Bible verse that talks about we have this treasure in earthen vessels because as God's earthen vessel, he's pouring out from and through you, but it's coming from him for the purposes that he has in mind. And the treasure that's pouring out of you is God's treasure. So it's very profound. And as he sees you being faithful along each step, he then sends you new opportunities, new resources, or the next thing on the journey. And you may have no idea what it is, may not have thought of it, and yet that door opens. And so that's what I'm also hearing from you as you describe this. I'm reminded of a story, and I'll be very brief with it for the sake of brevity and time. But when Mother Teresa was living, she was interviewed on television. It was one of her last interviews. And they asked her the question, how have you had such a major impact on the world? And she said, I don't know. And they said, there's got to be something that we can quantify that you can say. And she said, I don't know. But I do love people. And that's kind of like the way I try to live my life, just just loving people not trying to oversimplify things. We're here to love God, ourselves, and people. And that's why I find my sense of purpose. Oh, I love that. Say more about that because this is getting into what I'm sure it's the, what's driving your passion, what's getting you up every day in the morning, and what's keeping you going is that sense of loving people every day. So tell us more about that. Well, I, the way I come from, again, from a spiritual perspective is the the biblical scripture that says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added onto you. So my first assignment is just to seek God and then all those things will be added onto me. So I'm very much driven by this life of generosity. It's not something that I do. It's just not the name of our organization. It's central to my lifestyle. So I wake up every single day saying, how can I be a generous person? How can I let the light of God shine through my life that others might see God through me and that they will be touched and transformed. So that's how I uh, live my life and how I approach my work and how I build into our team members and our volunteers and our board. So it really is a culture of generosity that we're living out loud in order to attract people because the end goal is life transformation. Absolutely. So what about your background, this, let's say your growing up background, is related to having this vision of generosity? Maybe you learned it at home or maybe it was the opposite. I don't know what your background is, but how do you connect those couple of dots? I come from a family of very generous people in every sense of the word. My mom, my grandmother, my sisters, my brother, tremendous family of generosity. So it was modeled. So being the youngest of four children, it was modeled by everyone in my family that to have a giving heart, that a giving heart is a cheerful heart. God loves a cheerful giver. That Those values were instilled in me. 
So that's where I get it from. Well, you are blessed. <laughs> yes, thank you. That thank as a you. background, you know, I sort of think about the way that things transfer from one generation to the next, whether it be if the family is a group of singers or if people are teachers or whatever it is, it somehow, I even think about how God called different tribes, like the tribe of Judah to be singing. And those families, they had certain jobs that they did year after year and generation after generation, they would pass it on. And so in your case, your family passed on the generosity aspect. So that's a, that's a powerful story uh, to also share with us. Yeah. My mom says I inherited the generosity gene, Dr. Karen. Yeah, it sounds like it. And kudos to them for passing it on. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I know that life is in general, Michael, I would say it's a journey. It's not necessarily what I call a straight line function. There are challenges along the way. So what would you say was your biggest struggle and how did you overcome it? I would say as a CEO, my biggest challenge was reining in our board of directors to get on the same page and to really embrace this idea that the board is the boss, not board members. (laughs) (laughs) And because in, in many ways, in their own right, they're CEOs, they're senior executives and so they're used to calling the shots and doing their own things and so bringing someone in that's used to calling all the shots and now asking them to hold hands and sing kumbaya together was a challenge but we got there we got there i would say that has probably been my biggest challenge from a ceo standpoint from a life standpoint is really arriving at a place in my life to really go with the flow to really embrace the pressures of life and to know that they're pressing me towards where God wants me to be and to learn not to sweat the small stuff. As motivational speaker Les Brown say, who I used to work for, by the way, says it is all small stuff. So I've learned over the years to just embrace the challenges. And as you using your example, life is peaks and valleys and curves and turns, and we never know how we're going to navigate through those until we find ourselves in those situations. Absolutely. And I think that you're also implying that the journey itself is part of the preparation because we're learning lessons along the way. Everything is used. Nothing is wasted, you know, in God's economy. If he has you climb, you know, one of these 14,000 foot mountains out here, there's a reason for it. And it's going to prepare you for the next step. So absolutely the case. You know, it is really hard, by the way, Michael, to do what you said, to get a board aligned and going in the right direction. And for the reason that you mentioned as well, I mean, boards, of course, they're designed to be strategic and to have that big picture vision and to remember that there really is an operational team inside the company. And sometimes because they are CEOs and so on themselves, they forget. So just give us at least a tip or two. What did you do to make that happen? I knew that I had to build a culture and I knew that it wasn't something that was going to happen overnight. So every single board meeting we build into the board meeting, a board education segment to remind them of this mantra that we have or mantra that we have developed. And that is the board is the boss, not board members. And so it's been embedded in them 
So even when I come to the board meetings now, five years later, they go, Michael, we know the board is the boss. Our board members, it's on every slide, it's on every email, it's on everything. So it's become ingrained in our culture. The other thing, too, is that, as you know, we're seated here in southwest Florida in a, in a city specifically called Cape Coral. And I have been effectively referred to by my board members as Mr. Cape Calm. Cape Calm. They say, you're like a black hippie. You know, you're just so calm inside. You're so serene inside. I bring that out to say my sense of calm in the midst of storm and challenges has had a calming effect on our board that I'm not easily rattled by things. And so that's helped to create a calming effect with our board. That's phenomenal. That is great. I love that. A black hippie, okay. <laughs> but they 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 joke with me and they go, uh, they joke with me. They go, you are the Christian beer man, so maybe it's all that beer you were drinking <laughs> that made you so Somehow calm. They're connected. <laughs> yeah. So funny. you I still have it. it in your system, Michael. So that's what they tell me. <laughs> well, and God's using it for a good that's purpose right. and His glory, which is the great thing. So we've talked a little bit about the journey where there's kind of like the difficulties and challenges. What about the triumphs in your life? What would you count as maybe your biggest triumph? There are so many, you know, as a father, as a son, I have a very good relationship with my mom and probably the ultimate compliment that I consider a trump is that my mom said, you've never given me a problem Mm. and that you are my pride and joy. I talk to her every single day. And so to hear her say that as she reflects on uh, maybe some of the other challenges that she's had with my other brothers and sisters to be that calming effect in her life, I think is a major triumph. So most of the triumphs are more personal, less than career, because I know at the end of the day, that's going to be the only thing that really matters uh, in the end. And I would say the other triumph would be just the way I try to treat people. Just the golden rule is how I try to live my life. Well, those are phenomenal things to share as well. (laughs) And and others can take that as a little bit of a, maybe a line from a playbook that works. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I'm really glad you included the personal part because so often people get wrapped around just doing work and being in their executive role and presence. The family gets left behind. You care though about what impact you have on your mother and what she might say about you. That's phenomenal. You know, that's phenomenal. So thank you for keeping that in the scopes as well. People want to be successful out here. And there are others who are even just listening and thinking about it. Along the way, and you've shared a few tips along the way. What else would you share some tips for success that have been important to you and that made a difference in your life? I think that for me, remaining hopeful, uh, remaining optimistic, the Bible talks very clearly about call those things that be not as if they are or were. And so I have always been the keeper of the vision, the visionary, the optimistic one to hold the standard high of where we're going and keeping the eye on the prize that has really been I think monumental in the way I lead organizations. As I be reflect on the question, another one you asked about triumphs, 
as it relates to career. I never sought to do this, but interestingly enough, and I don't say this to be braggadocious, I probably get about three offers a month from headhunters who send me an email. Now, these are not big positions necessarily, but it's how they see me and how they view me. I become this turnaround CEO. So they see me as someone who can go into difficult situations, having a calm demeanor, being someone who is optimistic, that can come in and change the trajectory of organizations from the inside out and set them on a path for success. So I get a lot of those types of opportunities where people say we have an organization that has lost visibility and credibility and we need to set it on the right course. We need to rebuild the board. I get a lot of those types of opportunities. Wonderful. And that's really uh, quite a skill because not everybody has that. And yet the skill is needed in many businesses, you know, yeah. across the globe, not just in the United States, but everywhere. So in a sense, you have developed a skill set that as long as you want to be employed, you can be. <laughs> so <laughs> <it> that way. <laughs> the, the challenge is I don't often want the positions, but they do. <laughs> often. Yes. Exactly. So, well, the good news is you're where you're supposed to be for now. And that's really what counts. Sometimes we're not supposed to move to the next thing. I mean, even though we may get offers, God is saying, here's where I want you to be, you know, and that's okay too. So Michael, what is the legacy that you want to leave personally? And I know you've said a little bit in terms of your, your mother, your family, and, but say a little bit more, what's important to you in the kind of way you want to live your life and what I call living leadership legacy. What do you want that to be for yourself? I want to be known, obviously, as someone who loved God, loved people, loved myself, someone who made a difference in people's lives, someone who was always honest and fair, uh, a person of generosity, uh, someone who always sought to see the best in others and to help people to see that in themselves, to be an encourager, just really a lover of people is really what I want. Because I do believe this, this old Jimi Hendrix quote, and I know you've seen it many times, that if we could focus more on the love of people than the love of power, we can make a monumental change in the world. And that's one of the things that has always been embedded in my heart as a leader is that how can I be a love leader? How can I be a love leader to drive impact? It's the old saying that teachers have become known for, don't tell me how much you know until you show me how much you care. And so I try to focus on that, Dr. Karen. That's a powerful legacy. And I just heard another name for you now, the love leader. Okay. (laughs) The love leader. Yeah. You got all kinds of places where you could be the beer, Christian beer man, the love leader. Oh, my goodness. We're just finding all the different corners and places where you're operating. (laughs) So, Michael, how can people reach you, get a hold of you, find out more about the foundation or other things that you're doing that they may be interested in? Yeah, they can reach me here at the foundation. My phone number is 239-542. Five five nine four. Again, that's two three nine five four two fifty five ninety four. Or they can reach us through our website, which is capecoralcf.org. Capecoralcf.org. That's where they can contact me. 
Fantastic. And some people may want to know a little bit more about some of those resources that you mentioned that actually train people on how to think about philanthropy or how to think about legacy and how to do the work that's really life-changing in their own communities or whatever. So I'm really glad that you gave that information out. So as we're wrapping up and closing today, Michael, what additional words of wisdom do you want to share with my audience of Christian executive leaders? My mom shared with me a principle called the law of allowing. And it's something that I really had to learn and embrace. And it simply says, I am that which I am. And I'm willing to allow all others to be that which they are. And so the spiritual principle of allowing is something that I was taught by my mother and it's helped me to blow off certain agitations as a leader, as I'm engaging with people to try to understand their worldview, which might be different from mine as a Christian man, but to establish common ground. And so as a CEO of a community foundation, we are this even-handed convener, meaning that we need to work with people from across the aisles, politically, religiously, spiritually, ethnically, culturally. And so that statement, I am that which I am, and I'm willing to allow all others to be that which they are, has really helped me as a leader. That's very profound wisdom that you just shared. People waste so much time and energy trying to fight those kind of forces. And for all we know, I mean, God has us all down here as diverse people, and I'm not just speaking of ethnic and racial diversity, but just in terms of gifts, talents, bents, and directions, and so on. And if he doesn't want us all to be clones of one another. So I love the fact that your mother was showing you how to see the beauty in, in every person, so to speak. So thank you so much, Michael, for being here with me today and sharing all of these words of wisdom because your answers to every question really left some nuggets for people to think about. And thank you, Dr. Karen. You're welcome. So what I want to do, I want to just summarize a couple of things. And to the audience, I'm going to say, you'll have to go back and really re-listen because Michael did share a lot with us today. A few things really stood out to me personally that I'm going to take away. And one is that we can shine our light for the glory of God no matter where he places us. And he needs more of us to go to the unusual places, the anheuser bushes of the world, and to be in the secular marketplace, and to be that person who loves people, the person who practices just, I would say, showing up with the gifts that God gave you for the benefit of others. That's really what it's all about for us as marketplace ministry leaders anyway. So I hope you'll go back and listen to get the more detailed piece of that. But I think if I was summarizing it all, it's about loving people, resourcing people, having that vision for your organization, setting the pace and reminding them of what it is they're supposed to be doing. Like the board is boss and not the board members. That's a good reminder that Michael shared with us as well. So as we close today's segment, I want to close today with a, a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is from Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, and starting with verse nine, and it says, what profit 
has the worker from that in which he labors. I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. So as you take stock of your life today, think about how you are using the gifts, the opportunities that God has given you. Think also about how you are enjoying the blessings of God that he's also put in your life. And have a blessed week. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.